Hello, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Forgive me, that this past week I had an operation on my nose, a broken nose, a deviated septum from an old basketball injury, so it's still uh, kind of funky up in there, so you can uh, forgive me for that. So Tuesday, wow, election day. How many people are registered to vote in the state of Massachusetts? Oh, wow, okay, all right. So, you know, at Calvary Chapel here in Boston, I, you know, it's not my job, and nor do I think it's uh, appropriate for me to be endorsing political candidates. And, and uh, what I really want you guys to know and really be impressed with is that only revival is going to change this country. Only revival is going to change this country. Even if we get the candidate we want in office, there's going to be a huge segment of this country that's just fighting against the Lord. And an election doesn't change that. That said, I do believe it's wrong. I would even go so far to say it's sin to be apathetic and not be involved in the political process. We are supposed to be light. We do live in the United States of America. So anyway... Um, I don't do things like endorse candidates, and you'll probably twist my arm. You won't, you won't even get me to say who I was, I'm going to vote for. Don't cheat and ask my kids. Uh, but there is something on the Massachusetts ballot I do want to talk about. There's something on the ballot uh, this Tuesday, which you'll have an opportunity to reject, involving physician-assisted suicide. So they want to give the right to people to have a physician opine that, well, you're, you have a terminal illness, you're within six months of dying, and you can have the physician assist you in committing suicide. Now, that's evil. And the Bible is so clear that that is evil. Only God has the right to end someone's life. And we've already seen the effects. There are a couple states that have passed these kind of laws. We've, we've already seen the effects that this type of thing, what it does, it creates a culture of death. So, for example, in the state of Washington, the suicide rate generally went up when physician-assisted suicides were made legal, meaning it just becomes more acceptable. But man, woman, we're made in the image of God, and we're not to destroy that image. And you know, one of the one of the effects that is particularly tragic about these kind of uh, the, these kind of initiatives is that when they are put in play, and in most states they've been rejected. They've been rejected in Massachusetts before, but is that you know some people label them just legalized elderly abuse abuse of the elderly. That's what they are. Can you imagine? You're over 70, 80 years old. You have what you think is a terminal illness. And the, the expectation that many are going to be putting on you to do the right thing and end your life, this happens. This is not just something that I'm making up up here. This kind of culture 
gets ingrained in a society that takes, makes life expendable like this. So this Tuesday, go out and reject it. Reject that. We're supposed to be salt. We're supposed to be light, you know, in the society that we live in. So anyway, yes, Christians, salt and light, look at the issues and the political parties and the, and the people running for office and, you know, make your choice after prayer. So we are going through Luke chapter by chapter, verse by verse. If you could rise for the reading of God's Word, we are in Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. So don't freak out. I'm going to just read one verse here, and it's, a, it's kind of a, a freaky verse to be the only verse that I'm going to read. But it's verse 14, and it, but it just happens to be where we're at on Sunday mornings going through the Luke chapter by chapter, verse 14. And he, Jesus, was casting out a demon, and it was mute. So it was when the demon had gone out that the mute spoke. And the multitudes marveled. Lord, we want to marvel at you this morning. And Lord, show, we ask that you show yourself in such a way that we marvel in our hearts, Lord. This morning, oh Lord, you say in your word, Lord Jesus, you say that the Father is looking for those to worship him in spirit and in truth. We want to be, leave here worshipers this morning of you. Lord, I pray this morning that you show us through this word how to engage with the world, our families, friends, coworkers, how we love them. Give us a great under, understanding of, of you, Lord, and the world we live in. And, and Father, your priority for us, that we be like Christ, your Son. Father, we thank you for the cross. Thank you for sending your son to die for us. And that the grave did not keep him, but he raised from the dead, Lord. We, we also this morning, we, wanna, we just think of our brothers and sisters and friends in, in the New York and New Jersey area, Lord, the, the victims of, of the hurricane, Lord. We know there is much hardship Lord God, we remember your word which says you're the God of all comfort and ask that in this season you open up the eyes, Lord, of that region of the country to your tender loving mercy and loving kindness, but also just your judgments, your holiness, Lord, your, your reality. Father, we ask, Lord, for your covering over this country, for that you would have mercy on this country. Lord, forgive us. We certainly don't deserve mercy. We have rejected your son. The word we have rejected the word. We've taken prayer out of schools, out of the marketplace, out of the media. A discussion of you and your word out of all those places and replaced it with nonsense, Lord, forgive us. We ask that you have mercy on us, on this country, Lord. And Lord, we ask that righteousness would prevail 
in our country once again. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you may be seated. We left off a few weeks ago on Jesus' teaching on prayer. In verse 1 of this, cha- of this chapter, Luke chapter uh, 11, the disciples asked Jesus, and actually, actually they tell him, teach us to pray. And he does that. And in verses 2 through 4 of this chapter, the, the, what we know as the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then in verses 5 through 13, the first few verses of this chapter, his teaching on prayer, really instruction on what to pray. Verses 5 through 13 is more what our attitude towards prayer should be. And it's the context of where we are this morning. Verse 5 of chapter 11 says, Jesus says, which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me on this journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within and say, Do not trouble me. The door is now shut, and my people are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give it to you. Verse 8, Jesus continues here. He says, I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, which a few weeks ago we looked at this word. It means shameless audacity in the Greek. Because of his shameless audacity coming at midnight, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? Verse 13, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. And it's not a coincidence that Jesus concludes his teaching on prayer here with a plea to us to pray for the Holy Spirit. It's the best gift. If you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit? That is the best gift. It's not just a good gift. It's the best gift. Because listen, The more that you grow in your relationship with God, the more that you will realize that when you try to do whatever it is that God has called you to do, when you try to do it in your own strength, in your own wisdom, with your own resources, You fail. It's a pointless, fruitless, frustrating struggle. But when you yield to the Holy Spirit, when you open up yourself to the Holy Spirit of God, God will use you 
and you'll see the hand of God in your life. And it will build your faith, and from time to time, it'll even blow your mind. And you'll marvel at the power of God. So it's not a coincidence that the verse immediately after Jesus pleading us to ask God for the Holy Spirit is this verse, verse 14, which we read at the beginning. It says, and he, Jesus, was casting out a demon. So while this is going on, he's teaching about prayer, talking about the Holy Spirit. It says, and, and, and he was causing a demon, and it was a mute. So when the demon had gone out, that the mute, the mute spoke, and the multitudes marveled. It says they marveled. They were astonished. Now, in the parallel account in the book of Matthew, it says not only was this man mute, unable to speak, he was blind. Let's take a look at this. Matthew 12, 22. Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. Now, in Matthew's account, it also says that when the people saw this miracle, they marveled. But it also says something else. Let's read Matthew's, Matthew verse 23, which is the very next verse. And all the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? Now, who's the son of David? What does that mean? Messiah, the son of God the promised Savior, the one who God promised in the Old Testament to send who would save the world. Could this be the son of David? So the people who witnessed this miracle were faced with this question. Could this be God's anointed one, the Messiah, the one who prophets describe as the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, mighty God, of whom the increase of government there shall be no end? Could this be him? Is this him? They were presented with that question. Now, we know some of them. We know just from our reading of the Bible. When they were presented with that question, they surrendered their lives to him. To Jesus. This is the Messiah. I want him. I want all of them. And they turned away from a life of sin, of self, and they just believed on him. They were gloriously saved. Luke chapter 19, Jesus says, he came to seek and save what was lost. And indeed, he did in times like these. They were, there were folks gloriously saved, but not everyone. Some who were presented with the question, could this be the son of David? They responded in a different way. Let's read on in verse 15. It says, some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. Others testing him sought from him a sign from heaven. Wow. So there you have it, verses 15 and 16. They represent two kinds of responses of people who instead of simply accepting the obvious reality, which is right in front of them, staring them in the face, 
They reject it. A man was blind, and now he sees. A man was mute, unable to speak, and now he's talking. But instead of believing in Jesus, that he's the son of David, they reject him. Instead of calling him the son of David, they call him the son of a devil. Some said he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Others said testing him sought from him a sign from heaven. Now, you could say that there are two personality types represented there in those two verses, verse 15 and 16. Two personality types of the kinds of people who reject God. They reject Jesus. Verse 15, they represent spiritual cynics. Verse 16 represents spiritual bystanders. We're going to discuss those, those two uh, kinds of, I guess you would call them personality traits, uh, traits, although you could just say different kinds of rebellion. Spiritual cynics are people who have made up their mind that they are not going to surrender their life to anyone or anything. No matter what, their life is just that, their life. And they're not giving up control, surrender to anyone, no matter how strong the argument or evidence that is presented to them. Spiritual bystanders, they stay on the sidelines. They see the work of God. They're not enemies of it, but they may even really be impressed, even warmly affected by it. But what God presents to them really never seems to be quite enough. So they stay on the sidelines. They stay in the neutral zone. They are bystanders, always looking from the outside in when it comes to God, when it comes to Jesus Christ. So as you're sitting here, let that word speak to your heart. Is one of those, one of those folks you? Are you a spiritual cynic? Are you a bystander? Churches are filled with them in the United States, believe it or not, every Sunday. But first, let's talk about the spiritual cynic. So how they react when they see a blind man see a man who is mute talk. What do they say when they are confronted? Well, they say he casts out demons by a devil. Jesus is a devil, they say. He has the power over devils because he's, he's a devil. <laughs> what? <laughs> if you read this and go, well, that... That's just ridiculous. Well, you, you read correctly. Could anything be more absurd, uh, more absurd be uttered from the lips of a human being? No. In verse 17 himself, Jesus himself actually points out how silly this is. He says in verse 17, but he, knowing their thoughts, by the way, the last six chapters, you see that verse four times. Jesus, knowing their thoughts. He knows our thoughts. We can't hide a piece of our life or compartmentalize it and pretend it's not there. It says, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. And a house divided against itself, against a house, fails. Verse 18, if Satan, who is divided against himself, 
rather, if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebub. In other words, uh, Jesus is making a point. He goes, guys, Satan is at war against God. He's trying to tear down the glory of God. He's not at war with himself. If I'm acting on behalf of Satan, why on earth would I be casting out one of Satan's demons? In so many words, Jesus is saying, say what you want about Satan, but don't call him dumb. He ain't stupid. He's not going to turn one part of his kingdom against another part of his kingdom. Then he continues in verse 19 and says, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. And that's, that's a, a strange verse. What does that mean? Well, at the time, there were Jewish exorcists. There were uh, people who went around who used to go around casting out demons out of people. And you know, unlike, de- uh, unlike Jesus, actually, who, who cast out demons with a single word, you can actually read about these guys uh, in Josephus and other historians. They had these long rituals uh, to, to cast out uh, demons and, you know, abracadabra and water and all kinds of other things they did. You know, again, Jesus, it was just a word. Uh, but them, it was these elaborate rituals. You can actually read about some of them in Acts chapter 19. They appear in that uh, chapter Now, some of them, probably a very small minority, they were actually legitimate men of God. They succeeded from time to time, casting out a demon. Jesus is just asking these religious leaders who are accusing him of acting on behalf of Satan, well, surely you wouldn't say the same thing of your own sons. So why would you say such a thing about me? And then he continues in verse 20, but if I cast out demons with the finger of God... Surely, the kingdom of God has come upon you. And then he goes on in verse 21, when a strong man, he's speaking here of Satan, fully armed, one translation says armed to the teeth, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace, but when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and he divides his spoils. Today's language. What Jesus is saying here is, listen guys, don't deceive yourself. I just body slammed Satan. I just pile drived him. And and he is no match for me. He's dead meat now. Look at what just happened. So smell the coffee, coffee, guys. If I cast out demons by the finger of God, the kingdom of God has come upon you. The last chapter of 1 John says this, the whole world is under the sway or influence of the evil one. But 1 John 3.8 says this wonderful verse, For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. I love that verse. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested 
that he might destroy the works of the devil. So listen, spiritual cynics, men or women who are cynical about all things God, all things Jesus, men and women who face an overwhelming evidence of God right in front of them, what they do is they just throw out some objection, any objection, because they just don't know what to say, however absurd. Why? Because they have made up their mind. They're not surrendering to anyone or anything. They're not giving up any ground. So they just throw stuff out. You see them. You know them. Today, in, in 2012, this is not a phenomena uh, 2,000 years ago. It's how human nature still is. But for the grace of God, go we. And, and, and they're out there. You see them. Now, we'll get to uh, category number two, spiritual bystanders, which, by the way, represents the overwhelming majority of people in the United States. But there are these category one guys out there. and They will be presented with a full-on miracle, not that much unlike the one here in Luke chapter 12. And they'll just blurt out some silly thing. For example, if someone has a body ravaged by cancer. And the cancer... Overnight, vanishes. Just goes away completely inexplicably. Doctors can't explain it. This happens. The Bible says God heals. By his stripes, we're healed. It's, it's, it, it says that one of the names of, uh, of the Lord in, in the Bible is Jehovah Rapha. That's one of his names, meaning it's just part of who he is. It's what he does. I'm Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals you. He heals. This stuff happens. Cancer just disappears by the finger of God. Some of us were up in New Hampshire a few weeks ago with a, with a pastor up there. This guy, one of the most down-to-earth guys you could you possibly meet, this happened to him 15 years ago. His body just being destroyed by cancer, gone. Doctors didn't, had no idea what happened. And 15 years later, he's up, you know, preaching to us up in New Hampshire on the other side of the country. Not a trace of cancer since that time. This happens. But there's a type of person when faced with this, they'll just blurt out some mumbo-jumbo that makes no sense. Well, not, not everything in medical science can be explained from time to time, but very rarely, you know, cancers just spontaneously disappear. What? And usually these are the people that insist on everything being explained through natural reason and phenomena. To which we respond, what? How do we respond? We respond something like Jesus. Listen, if someone has been healed by the finger of God, brother, sister, the kingdom of God has come upon you. That's our response. Let's not shut up when it comes to that one. Let's not, be, let, let's not let our shame seal our mouths, our lips. When the finger of God has healed, the kingdom of God has come upon you. Don't despise God. Don't, you need to embrace the Lord. He's real. He did this to show you, spiritual cynic, that he's real. Give up the fight you have against him and believe. They're out there. You know, you see the same kind of thing in the evolution-creation debate. 
We saw it in this very room when Dr. Nathaniel Jensen, who's a Harvard PhD in biology, presented his case of why the so-called evolutionary tree has no scientific basis or actually has no scientific basis or support. It doesn't. And certainly not the kind of support that should be required to show up in a high school or college textbook. So now bear with me this morning. I'm actually going to give you a, a, a brief little review of what he did. I love this stuff, so I'm going to do it. So I'm going to put this stuff right up here. Did anyone remember this list from, that Nathaniel put up, Dr. Jensen? So this is, this is sort of, kind of, uh, he just picked out some biological classifications and starting with yeast cells, going up beetle, up the supposed evolutionary tree, rainbow fish, deer mouse, shrew mole, chimpanzees, humans. We could leave this up for a little while here. Yeast cells, beetle, rainbow fish, deer mouse, shrew mole, chimpanzees, humans. These are so-called escalating biological classification groups. I'm sorry, I love this stuff. If not, bear with me. After I, you know, after I go through this, you may love it. So what, what he showed us is this, the DNA sequence, the DNA sequence that he showed us of comparable genes between the creatures of, uh, or, or classifications, while it is true that there are lesser percentage differences at the top of this uh, so-called evolutionary tree, humans and chimpanzees, actually they believe it, uh, originally it was 2%, now it's up to 5%, which is a huge problem with them. But yes, there's a lesser degree of percentage difference in the uh, DNA sequence among comparable genes. That's true. But what he did for us was that he uh, went to the, started at the bottom of the so-called evolutionary tree that you see here, and there was an astoundingly high percentage difference between the DNA sequences of comparable genes, for instance, between yeast cells and beetles, and beetles and rainbow fish and yeast cells and deer mouse. In, in fact, it was an astounding 50%, which just blows apart the whole gradual tree of life, you know, uh, one creature evolving to a higher creature, common answer. It just blows it apart, a 50% difference between yeast cells and, and beetles uh, here. But it was actually more astonishing than that. What Dr. Jensen also showed was that there was the exact same high percentage difference, 50%, between yeast cells and beetles, but also yeast cells and rainbow fish, and also yeast cells and deer mouse, and also shrew moles and, and, and yeast cells, and chimpanzees and yeast cells, and humans and, and, and yeast cells. 50% difference in the DNA sequence of comparable genes. You still with me? In other words, every creature or biological classification above the yeast on the so-called evolutionary tree of life was equally different or distant from the, from the yeast cells in terms of, uh, of the DNA sequence of comparable genes, which means that there is no evolutionary tree of life. The, the, the yeast cells, which are at the very bottom of the evolutionary tree of life, are no closer to human beings than they are to beetles. Did you hear that? The yeast cells are no closer to human beings than they are to beetles. Now, what's the explanation for all that? 
God created all of it? Maybe? Could that be? And as we sat here with Dr. Jensen and he carefully walked us through this, what did many of us do? We did the same thing that they did here in, in verse 17 of chapter 11 of Luke. We marveled at the glory of God, at the finger of God. However, there were some in the audience who purported to represent the, the scientific community who, who got up and, and, and they responded exactly like these people did in Luke chapter 11. One guy just got up and said, your figures are highly misleading. But he didn't say a single word backing up anything, backing up this extraordinary allegation that he had just made because he had nothing to say. Nor is, you know, Dr. Jensen heard from these guys, nor has there been any piece of evidence trying to, you know, which really militates against his argument. A spiritual cynic. They will throw out any objection rather than capitulate or give in to God. Is that you this morning? Are you refusing to give it all up to God? Has he been in your face proving himself real? In your face real? I'm here. I love you. I want you. But you're just throwing out any objection? Now, we had another guest here a few years ago in this very room. His name was Rob Rogers. Do you guys remember Rob Rogers? Extraordinary story. A very different speaker than Nathaniel Jensen. In August of 2003, Rob was driving on a highway in Kansas with his four kids and his wife, and from one moment to the next, a flash flood overtook him, and his four kids and wife perished, died right there. Four small kids and his wife, gone, and he's left alone. How does someone recover from something like that? Well, I, I tell you what, in the world, they don't. But what we saw from Rob Rogers was a man filled with strength, with love, with no resentment of God, but pure worship of God, strong in his faith, joy, filled with an inner joy, filled with peace, how does that happen? I tell you how it happened. He declared it very clearly that morning. Jesus touched me. Jesus got a hold of me. And the Bible says when, he, uh, when, when Jesus says, when I am in the, the palm of, uh, when you're in the palm of my hand, no one, in no way will you ever be cast out. And that, he, he was saying that was me. It has been me. It hasn't been easy. But you will present this type of case to the world. Here's a man who says he has been miraculously preserved by Jesus Christ. And, and they'll say some, again, ridiculous nonsense that we read, like we read in Luke chapter 12. Where Jesus is the, is the son of a devil. 
They'll say something about Rob Rogers. Well, you know, the capacity of the human will and the human beings are resilient and, 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 and you know, there are people out there that can overcome these things. Oh, really? Where? You show me where they are. Mental hospitals are filled with people like that and they're just drugged. This man has had no medical help no antidepressant medication. He, you know, he, he did obviously go to counsel for a time. He, but, but where are they? What do you mean people like this exist? You show me where they exist. Other than those who gloriously have been set among us who have been touched by the finger of God. And when the finger of God touches a man and heals him like that, Brothers and sisters, the, the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, how does all this apply to us? Well, there's a couple of things I want to say. One of them is I know for a fact that there are not a few, but a whole bunch of people in this room this morning that while you didn't have something happen to you in your life, the equivalent of Rob Rogers... Because truly that was an extraordinary. Man, you have a story. You have a story. You have a history with God. You have been touched by the finger of God. And it can be said of you too that Jesus came upon you and, 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 and he took out the strong man, the fully armored strong man with guards in place. And he took it all out, and he rescued you, and he saved you. And, and your life, too, represents an, uh, an example that the, where the finger of God touched you. And, and, and you, your life is a living testimony, a living message that the kingdom of God has come upon you. That is, to the people that are around you. You want to see, you see my life? Let me tell you about my life. It is a testimony that the kingdom of God has come upon you, coworker, you family member, you neighbor. Jesus Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. And the Bible says that we who are alive in Christ are no longer slaves to sin because anyone who has died in Christ has been freed from sin. Where do you find people like that out in the world? Free, filled with joy, productive. You don't, other than those who have been touched by the finger of God. Your life is a testimony. Don't forget that. There's a message coming out of your life. If you haven't given your life to Jesus Christ, he wants to make a testimony of it. Spiritual cynics, they're out there. But there's also spiritual bystanders. Verse 16 describes them, their reaction to seeing a blind man see, a mute man speak. It says, but others sought from him a sign from heaven. <laughs> what? What was it that you just saw? Verse 23 Jesus begins to address these people. 
He says, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Let me repeat that. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters, meaning you can't be a bystander. You can't stay in the neutral zone. You can't be like the uh, overwhelming majority of the United States of America who, no, they're not spiritual cynics. They're not enemies of all that is good. These people are impressed by the things of God. They're even warmed by the presence of the people of God. But they're on the sidelines. They're neutral. They are on the sidelines. Verses 24 through 26, Jesus points out the danger of staying in the neutral zone. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man... He goes through dry places seeking rest and finding none. He says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. And then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter and they dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Wow, those are some funky verses. And let me tell you what they're about here. If you stay neutral, if you stay on the sidelines, and an event like what happened to Rob Rogers, or another event such as alcoholism, or another event such as drug addiction, or another event such as sexual addiction, or another event like, I don't know, workaholism in your life or whatever, There are ways in the world to overcome those things. And all of us have met some people who have overcome those things. But you better beware. And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, I have seen this so many times. Spiritual bystanders, they they never really jump into the game. And I don't want to make light of what it means to give your life to Jesus Christ because it's not a game. But they never get onto the field. They never commit their lives. They never give up their heart. And they manage through therapy sessions or, 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 or maybe some uh, other means to overcome something like alcoholism or whatever. And they go through a season where they're dry or whatever, but you know what happens over time so many times? Man, that devil or that demon, or maybe it's not a demon, that, that, that addiction, whatever, comes back, and man, within a few months, they are, in, they are in a worse position than they have ever been in their lives. And Jesus is saying, don't you be a spiritual bystander. Jesus says, if anyone will follow me, take up your cross and follow me. Meaning, take up your cross, meaning the cross represents going to the cross and dying. Don't be a bystander. Don't, don't, don't be, hang out in the neutral zone on the sidelines. Join me is what he is saying here. Verse 27 and 28, we'll end with this. It says, And it happened as he spoke these things that a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast which nursed you. But he said, More than that, 
Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. I'm going to read those two verses again because they sort of come out of the blue. It says, as it happened, verse 27, a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said, blessed is the woman who bore you and the breasts which nurse you. Who's she talking about here? Mary. But he said, more than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Let me tell you what a spiritual bystander always does on the sideline. What do they do on the sideline? Religion. Religion. They, 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 they want to make an idol, an idol of, for example, in this case, which some churches have done, an idol of Mary, the mother of Jesus. They want to stand on the sideline and, and really get all warm and fuzzy and, and, uh, and religious about something that was never intended to be worshipped or followed or, or even revered. And, and Jesus says, no, you got it wrong. Earlier in the book of Luke, we saw this in Luke chapter 8. That they, said, they said to Jesus, he was surrounded by crowds. They said, your mother and brothers are looking for you. And he says, my mother and brothers are those who hear the word of God and what? Do it. Spiritual bystanders. Don't be a spiritual bystander and just sit on the sideline and, and think about religious things, idols, stuff. Do the word of God. And so spiritual cynics and spiritual bystanders, guess what? God loves them. God's heart breaks for them. Many of us in this room used to be in one of those two categories, but oh, 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 yes. These people resist the work of the Holy Spirit in their life. In fact, in, the, in Matthew's account, he actually calls what these people are doing blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the, the unforgivable sin, resisting the Holy Spirit. The unforgivable sin, he says. But listen, some of these folks, you have them, spiritual cynics, spiritual bystanders, you've got them in your family. Some of you have friends like this. Some of you have coworkers. Uh, and listen, you, you can give them the most... You could put a miracle in front of their face. You can give them the most rational, powerful, carefully, wonderful, wonderfully presented argument for the existence of God. But let me tell you, where did we begin this morning? Where do we begin this chapter? Prayer. If you're not praying, forget about it. Forget about it. If you're not prayer. And I'm not talking, if you're not in prayer, rather, I'm not talking about the shallow prayer life many of us grew up with. You know, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep, you know, at the end of the day. Or God's great, God's good, let's thank him for our food. Amen. You know, I'm not talking about that kind of prayer life. I'm talking about the prayer life we learned at the beginning of this chapter. Where Jesus told us, verse 8 of the same chapter, as a friend goes at midnight with shameless audacity and pounds on his neighbor's door asking for bread, so we should be showing up at God's door with shameless audacity, praying for the, 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 our sisters, our brothers, our mothers, fathers in our own family, our cousins, our, our, our neighbors, the students in our dorm, and, and, and in our families, just in our coworkers, we should be praying for them with shameless audacity. I know, Lord, I know that this person in my life is a cynic, and you present them with the obvious truth, and they blurt out some ridiculous objection. But, Lord, I know that you love them and you gave your son for them. 
And what does it also say in, in the first 12 verses of this chapter? It says, remember what we studied in those verses. Ask and you will receive. Seek and knock. Or rather, seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. And what does it say? It says in, in the Greek, it says those are in the present imperative. A present imperative command, meaning what they really say is you must continually ask and you will receive. You must continually seek and you will find. You must continually knock and the door will be open unto you. This is the world that, that we live in. And he goes on to show you why you need this, why you need to not stop, why you need to ask him for the Holy Spirit. Because without the Holy Spirit, you haven't a chance. They'll be calling the most wonderful in-your-face miracle of the work of the devil or a coincidence or whatever. We need to pray. It's time to pray. Oh, the grace of God. Because but for the grace of God go we. We've been gloriously brought into this kingdom, but not to grow fat and happy, but to pray and declare the goodness of God. All right. The worship team could come up. Let's close in prayer. Father, I just thank you for this for this, I guess we could say, in your face example, Lord, of, of, of your power. Lord, what is so striking to us is that not, none of the enemies of God ever denied these miracles. They just resisted the Holy Spirit. Lord, how we pray for those around us in our families, in our lives, in our dorm in our, in our neighborhood at work, Lord, who are resisting the power of the Holy Spirit. They're pushing him away. Day after day, Lord, we pray for your mercy, Lord, even as you had mercy on us, Lord, even as we fought against you and your will and what you wanted to do in our life and you saved us, we pray that you'd have mercy on our brothers and sisters who are not saved Lord, who are on their way to hell, who are on their way to eternity without you. We pray, Lord, that you would save them in our midst. Give us the, the boldness to declare your word. Give us the grace to pray. Lord, make a testimony of our life that we're not ashamed of, Lord, that, that the message emanating from our life will be the finger of God has touched this man, this woman, and therefore the kingdom of God has come upon you. That message would be coming out of every one of us, Lord. Lord, we thank you for your grace. Continue to speak to us and guide us and strengthen us this week as we live out this word pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you can rise for the closing worship song. If something in the message has stirred you in the heart, we have people who are going to be praying during the closing worship song. If you've been asked to pray, please come up in the corners here. Just come up and pray with them during the worship song or after the close of the service. God bless you.